The following podcast is based on real events. Hello and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. But um, I think we should talk about our very special guest we have joining us today. Indeed. Joining us is Marianne Johansson. Hello, Marianne. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we will crack on with the film in a little bit, but we like to hear the story of the guests. So I, I was speaking to you the other day off air and quite fascinated with your story. How did you get into, first of all, the website that you run and also films? Well, I originally thought I wanted to make films. Um, I went to uh, New York University for years for their film school. And, but the instant I got there, I realized it was not for me. Because uh, I'd loved film since I was a kid. And yeah, that, I thought, let's make movies. And uh, yeah, it wasn't going to work. Too much of a team effort. And I'm, I'm not a team player at all. <laughs> More of a lone wolf. Um, so I left film school and um, I started working in publishing. But I had been writing all, all along. I started publishing science fiction fanzines when I was a teenager. This was back in the day when fanzines were Xerox and sent through the mail. This is before the internet. Uh, but then the internet started to come along and people were reviewing films online. And I thought, I could do that. So I started this little website um, in the, the personal web space that they gave you with an AOL mm. account. This was in 1997. So this is yeah. quite a while ago. And uh, really quickly outgrew that web space and then went into self-hosting. And since then, yeah, it just it sort of snowballed. I'm still doing it almost 25 years later, which is astonishing to me. I had no idea it would ever last this long. Um, sometimes people say things like, oh, if I'd known things were going to last this long, I would have done, done things differently. But I don't, I can't say that because no one knew where the web was going to go. The way the web happens now could never have predicted it. So I just kind of always done what felt right at the time and still, still sort of working. So I'm still here. <laughs> I can kind of relate to that story, actually, because, I mean, I was always someone who was writing about film from a very, very young age. And they always have that adage of, well, film critics actually just want to be filmmakers. So I remember going yeah. to an orientation for film school and sitting there being like, I do not want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I pretty quickly realized that I had made a mistake in going to film school. <laughs> so, yeah, and right. So I... I I did think I wanted to be a filmmaker, and then yes, I, I'm not a thwarted filmmaker. I am. I was a thwarted film critic <laughs> when I decided to go to film school. Maybe. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, one thing you mentioned the other day was I think you, it's been running since 1997, and the yep. website is uh, flickphilosopher.com, which we'll have a link to in the show notes below as well. Um, but 97. I mean, did I your? I, I have a question. Did, did your yep. website have one of those cursors like that had a shadow on it that chased it around, or did you have like no. burning text or anything like no, really classic I never, websites? I never did any gimmicky stuff like that. Uh. I, that stuff really annoyed me even back in the day when it was supposedly <laughs> cool. No, it was really it was pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Um, I didn't even have photos because you know the web was really slow then. You didn't. Uh, use photos for things so it was pretty much just pure text-based i played around with colors and things but yeah it was uh it was pretty simple pretty, pretty simple and straightforward 
And also I was doing I was doing the coding by hand and I you know sort of basically oh, wow. taught Ooh. myself HTML like by like learning a language like phonetically. It's like I figured out what things could do. Like, so it was never really very complicated. I mean, I remember when I started writing, it was 10 years after you and I had the advantage of things like Blogger, which made it so much easier. <laughs> I can't imagine coding. Yeah, I actually, when blogging software started to come, come along, I sort of faked doing that where like the newer um, updates were up at the top of the page, and but I had to do that all by hand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it took, it, it was, I moved to Movable Type, which is a blogging um, platform, I think in like 2008 or so, something like that. So it, it I had been going for more than 10 years before I finally like made it easier on myself. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> As as we're winding towards the film, the the question I would like to ask our guests, and especially esteemed ones like yourself, is spy movies. It's what we talk about every week. What are some of your favorites? Uh, I tend to go more towards the slightly humorous ones. Like I love the Melissa McCarthy movie from a couple of years ago that's just called Spy, which mm -hmm. is just absolutely brilliant, really funny, and really gets at tearing apart some of the um, the tropes and the cliches of the genre. Uh, I really like that. Um, I like the Austin Powers movies. I think they're a lot of fun. Um, I do like the recent James Bond ones, the, the Daniel Craig movies. Uh, I don't love all of them, but when they're really good, like Skyfall and Casino Royale, I think are, are really amazing. So I would, yeah, I'd probably go with those. Well, it's very timely. Maybe, you know, our listeners haven't come across your review. What did you think of No Time to Die? Eh, it was okay. <laughs> I didn't think it was great. Um I think it's over, it's way too long, hmm. uh, and some of it feels really desperate. Some of it feels like um, the UK is trying to convince itself it's still a player on the world stage. <laughs> yes, Scott. <laughs> which, which is, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I live in the UK. I've been here for almost eleven years, and I love this country. And you know, the fact that this just just the the little bit of time that delayed this film, you know, when the impact of Brexit has finally hit, and people are really finally seeing, like, yeah, this whole global Britain thing is probably not going to work. I think this movie hits really differently now than it would have if it had been released when it was originally scheduled. Mm. So didn't hate it. Still like Craig as Bond. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's one of the better outings for him. Right. Well, it's it's, it's an interesting film. Uh, we, we had a good time discussing it a while back on the show. But uh, yeah, it's not in my top Craig's, I don't think. It's, no. it's definitely up there with Skyfall and Casino Royale. But uh, seeing as we're talking about Bond, do you have a, a Bond preference? Uh, who, who's I your Bond? Well, I would say probably Daniel Craig. I've actually, I think the first Bond that I saw was the Timothy Dalton one. I've never seen the Sean Connery ones oh, wow. or I know, or the Roger Moore ones. I know it's embarrassing, um, but it kind of, it, they never really quite appealed to me. Um, I'll probably go back and watch them at some point. But yeah, the Timothy Dalton one, I think was the first one that I saw. Uh, but yeah, I got to go with Daniel Craig, I think. That's, that's entirely fair. I would recommend like watching like From Russia With Love. To start me with the Connors, because yeah. that one's very Hitchcockian, and they don't quite know yeah. what the Bond formula is yet, so they're really looking to things like North by Northwest for inspiration. It is. It's it's one of those things where the, the films have been so influential and so pervasive in pop culture that I sort of feel like I've seen them. Mm. Um, I know that's not that's that's often a, a misapprehension, but they're so they're so everywhere that um, I feel like I probably have a good sense of of the Bond of the early Bond stuff, even without having seen the films. But yeah, I do need to rectify that. <laughs> well, maybe moving on from slapstick and comedy spy films, uh, let's talk about the film we're discussing this week. Uh, it's definitely not a comedy. No. Cam, what have we got? <laughs> yes, we are tackling Catherine Bigelow's 2012 film, Zero Dark Thirty. 
So this is going to be an interesting one because I think we've got three different countries represented here. I mean, Marianne, you live in the UK now, but you're, of course, an American. Mm -hmm. I'm British, Canada, Canadian. And this is this film has a lot to do with geopolitics and maybe your thoughts on certain things. But I think what we'll do first is talk about our original experiences with the film. So can you first, I mean, did you see this in theaters? Did you, do you have any memory of it at all? Yeah, I do. I did see this in theaters. This was one of the Oscar, you know, type movies, one of the prestige films of the season. There's always one that does not open before the end of the year, which is a nightmare when it comes to writing my top 10 of the year list. It's, there's always one and it drives me crazy. This was the one that I had to see in January of uh, 2013 and it had a lot of hype going in, and I was a big fan of The Hurt Locker, and I remember enjoying the movie. I looked up my original grade. I gave it like a really positive grade, but it wasn't one that I think I felt passionate about at the time. I, um, I wonder if it was almost like too much recency, where it was like, okay, I've just heard about all these news events the last couple of years. Now I'm watching the movie chronicling them. It feels a little too soon, or maybe I'm a little exhausted on this sort of thing. But I did really admire how technically well-made it was and the performances. So it was a movie I walked out positive on, but also not swept up on. And I will say, like, the difference in time was very interesting when it came to rewatching this movie. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, uh, what's his name? Elton John doing his, 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 the story of his life in film while he's still alive. Yeah. And it's, it's that odd thing that some people do. Uh, Marianne, what about you? Uh, well, I saw the film at a press screening, uh, or even possibly it might have been an, an award screening, which are uh, screenings that are for press, but also for uh, people who work in the industry who will be voting on Oscars and other awards things. But it was definitely before it was released. Um, and I went back and read my original review from the time, and I was pretty gung-ho on the film, except for... I, I, did feel that it's a bit pro-torture. It's a bit misleading in the sense that it, you know, gives the idea that actionable intelligence has gotten from torture, which we know is not true. We know that torture doesn't work. Um, and I felt it was a, a bit gung-ho, like a bit gung-ho pro-American. And I'm very, very lefty, progressive. Um, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, you know, people might not like Americans storming into their country unannounced and uninvited, you know, with military to even to catch a bad guy. Um, so that, that did bother me a little bit, but the performances are incredible. It's, it's very gripping. Um, when we're talking about spy stuff, it's probably, you know, one of the more realist, realistic films about what it means to actually be some sort of covert agent or what we would call a spy that it's, you know, it's not all out in the field with a gun. It's not James Bond. It's sitting at a desk <laughs> and, you know, digging through, paperwork and videos and stuff so I feel in that sense there's certainly some positive stuff to be had from this okay. certainly I mean I, I I do think it's a good film um well I mean just for me I didn't catch this at cinema I I was just getting into the point where I would listen for hype with films and the hype was quite palpable for this film so when it came on home release I remember picking it up I don't know if it was a rental or I, I bought a dvd of it I had the DVD, I remember enjoying it, but it didn't really leave much of a lasting impression on me, despite this film touching on things like 7-7, which is a very important moment to me. I have a personal connection to that day. Um, I I don't find myself being particularly like, go get them, which I think it, this film maybe relies on a little bit, but we'll perhaps get into that. Um, but yeah, I remember enjoying it, but not being blown away. Mm-hmm. 
I did one thing. I did one thing. I do remember thinking, and I, I mentioned it in my review at the time, is that I did wonder whether it was too soon. Like you were saying about Elton John making a movie while he's still alive about himself. Um, yeah, I did. I did feel like, are we still too close to this to have the kind of perspective that a film like this needs? And I'm still not sure about that. Okay. Well, I think for our listeners that maybe haven't seen it in a while or haven't caught the film, what we'll do is we'll turn to Old Faithful, the letterbox.com synopsis. Zero Dark Thirty, the greatest manhunt in history. A chronicle of the decade-long hunt for Al-Qaeda terrorist leader Osama bin Laden after the September 2001 attacks and his death at the hands of the Navy SEAL Team 6 in May 2011. I, I guess that doesn't really sum up the plot of the movie or the character who's driving the story, but sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically tells you the ending. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it sound a lot more sort of bland and, and dull than it is. I mean, as, as a film, it's exciting in the sense that it's a, it's a, basically it's a gripping procedural. It's a detective story. Mm. It's a mystery. It's uh, yeah, that the, the dogged detective who's, you know, will not let go of this. I, I, I mean, to be fair to letterbox, it tends to be people that will submit these uh, synopses. So <laughs> I, I even I, I probably wrote this. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> It's probably done by computers or AI or something. Well, Marianne, I'm glad you've joined us. But before we get into the review proper, Cam, I need some intel. And frankly, I do not want to use any enhanced interrogation techniques on you. So how did this film come to be? So this was the second collaboration of director Catherine Bigelow coming off of her Oscar win for The Hurt Locker. And she was reteaming with that film's writer, Mark Bull. And Mark Bull was the writer-producer on that film as well as this one. And in his backstory, he was a journalist who'd worked in a lot of hot zones, he'd embedded with troops, he'd covered the war on terror for quite a while. So it made a lot of sense for him to perhaps make a movie like this. And um, they decided, you know, coming off The Hurt Locker, which won Best Picture, it won her Best Director, it won Best Screenplay, it was a kind of a big deal that maybe they could get a blank check movie made. Like maybe they could cash in on the success of The Hurt Locker and get something that maybe a studio wouldn't be crazy about made. And that kind of wasn't the case because uh, Hurt Locker wasn't really a financial success. It was actually at the time the lowest grossing Best Picture winner, I believe, uh, to date. But it was just a Best Picture winner. So people loved it, but no one went to see it. Correct. <laughs> so that's that typical critic situation, isn't it? Where it's like, it's a critical darling and every cinema going is like, oh, I don't care. Yeah, and since then it's become super common. You know, movies like yeah. Moonlight, for example. Yeah, it's just like nowadays, Nomadland, another one. Um, we give best pictures to really great movies, but ones no one really wants to see. I think that's probably more of an endemic problem in cinema mm. than, than necessarily the Oscars, but anyway. For sure. And they were looking to make a different kind of war film. They wanted to make it about the ill-fated attempts to capture Osama bin Laden in the wake of 9-11. That was the plan. The ill-fated attempts. And so they decided to build it around the 2001 Battle of Tora Bora, which was the um, attempt early in the uh, U.S. invasion of Afghanistan to um, take down Bin Laden in the cave complex in Tora Bora. And they spent over a year researching and writing this film and going back and forth with the CIA. Mark Bull had a lot of CIA contacts with his past as a journalist. And so this was going to be a very like elaborate film about, you know, a foiled attempt, ultimately, 
to get some sort of justice post 9-11. The studio, as you can imagine, they were not thrilled. <laughs> they were like, really? <laughs> this is the movie you want to make? Uh, okay. But they were they were given the carte blanche because of the Heart Locker. No. <laughs> the studios were oh. like, no, we're not paying for this. <laughs> oh, okay. So they uh, instead wrote the movie Triple Frontier. And the idea would be maybe that would be their next film. And ultimately that movie just stalled at Paramount and it's never ended up happening with them more on triple frontier later down the road. Um, ultimately they were able to secure 45 million in independent financing through Megan Ellison's Annapurna pictures. Are you aware of who Megan Ellison is Scott? No. Okay. She is the 26 year old daughter of Oracle CEO, Larry Ellison. She is a billionaire heiress who is a huge movie fan. And around this time, decided I'm getting into the movie business and I'm going to start paying for a lot of the movies I would like to see. So if there was interesting directors out there looking to make oddball movies, Megan Ellison was the person they were running to to finance them and she financed a lot of great movies. Do you uh, do you happen to know if she likes podcasts? <laughs> She's not going to pay for your Patreon, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should. <laughs> so Megan Ellison agreed to fund them and gave complete creative and business control to Catherine Bigelow. So, yeah, that's kind of what the perfect situation is, folks in Hollywood. <laughs> um, now, they were putting the finishing touches on this project, and then the phones rang, and the President Obama announcement that SEAL Team 6 had killed Bin Laden was airing, and they were like, oh, well, our entire original movie no longer stands up. Like, we have to um, basically... I don't know. Initially, they thought maybe they could just tack on a different ending. And then they realized, no, the entire purpose of the entire movie thematically just collapsed. There was no movie there anymore. But they made, like, World War II films about stuff in the war, not the end of the war every time. Like, why couldn't they have told this story? Because thematically, it was about America's failed attempts. Like, that was the entire point of the film. As in, they'll never get him. Yeah. Right. I see that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can see why you might want to pivot. Yeah, so um, as soon as this news broke, Sony was like hopping on the phone and being like, please, 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 we want to distribute your movie. This project was going around. Suddenly, this was the hot project to make and studios wanted to get it out there for the public. And so roughly a year and a half later, they had Zero Dark Thirty. They had to basically rewrite most of it. They've said that the only bit from the original vision of this movie is the opening with the black screen and the um, audio from 9-11. Oh, not even the black site stuff, but literally just that black screen and, and the, the phone calls. That is the only bit carried over from the original script. Huh. Okay. That's barely anything. That's a completely new script then, really. Mm-hmm. And they shot the movie in India and Jordan over 14 weeks, which is actually a very short production schedule for a movie that's pretty dense and elaborate like there's a lot going on in that movie that's a fast shoot there is but there's no uh, you know cg or anything like that it's very practical yeah but you think about staging the entire last half hour of this movie that would have taken quite a while i mean i don't make films so i'll take your word for it <laughs> and they ultimately produced two million feet of film which required two editors working in tandem to put it together so like there was a lot shot for this movie, and uh, yeah, uh, the fact you have two editors needed to assemble this thing in time shows you that Catherine Bigelow had 
really big ambitions for this film. Well, I'd like to think they're paid off, but we'll get into that in a bit. <laughs> and as I said, the movie had a budget of $45 million. Domestically, it did 95.7. International, 37.1. For a worldwide total of $132.8 million. So is that more successful than The Hurt Locker? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Jeremy Renner. Mm, indeed, indeed. It was number 57 for the year between Last Vegas... That's you a remember good, Last Vegas? Yeah, I like that film. Okay, that's, uh, was it Michael Douglas, Morgan Freeman, a bunch yeah. of old men go to Vegas? Isn't it yeah. Michael Caine as well? Oh boy, there's a Patreon episode coming up. Oh boy, we got some Vegas stories we can tell you. So Last Vegas beat it by just a little, but uh, Zero Dark Thirty did beat Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. Oh, I actually haven't seen either of the Ghost Rider films. Oh really? Oh, that's crazy. Is it? Well, I don't know. They were sort of an interesting um, artifact of that era where studios were making comic book movies, but not quite sure yet how to do it, or at least um, not sure how to lock into a winning formula time and time again. Wasn't it under the like Marvel Knights umbrella? Yeah, it was. It was. It was those two films and something else, I think. Spawn? No, that's not Marvel. It was only the second Ghost Rider, and it was the two Punisher movies. Ah, yes. Okay, the Punisher films. That makes sense. Because the second Ghost Rider was kind of a loose reboot, and it was a little more violent than the original. The original was more of a just down-the-middle-of-the-road blockbuster. Like Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 style, where it's kind of the same film twice. Sort of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they shifted up kind of locations, villains, all that sort of stuff, but it was a little similar. Not a remake, though. Not a full remake. Just kind of a loose reboot where it was, let's cut loose most of the ties to the original cast and stuff like that. But it wasn't Nicolas Cage in both. Yeah, he's the only thing that really carries over. And carry over, I'm sure he does. Mm, he does. The top three for this year, number one was The Avengers, number two was Skyfall, and number three was The Dark Knight Rises. And this movie did very well with Oscar nominations. It won Best Sound Editing, but was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Editing. Not a bad haul. What did Hurt Locker get? Best picture. Best picture, best screenplay, best editing, uh, best director. Those are the ones I remember. And was this was this Bigelow's two films back to back? Uh yes. This was her follow up to the Hurt Locker. So this was her back at the Oscars, um, like two years later, three years later. That ain't bad. No, but you're less likely to win the second time. <laughs> They're like, okay, we've got to spread the wealth around a little more. Has she won again since? No, no. Fair enough. Yeah. So, um, a couple other notes. In 2019, the movie Triple Frontier was made, and it was rewritten and directed by J.C. Shandor, who'd done movies like All is Lost and A Most Violent Year. And I believe Ben Affleck was one of the stars. It was sort of an ensemble. Um, it was a Netflix production, as I recall. It was very forgettable. Like, it had some interesting elements, but not a movie yet. I suspect the version that wound up on Netflix was very different than what Bull and Bigelow would have intended. I hear Netflix and I immediately uh, get nervous. Mm hmm. Yeah. And um, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull would reteam for 2017's Detroit, which was about the 1967 police response to a riot and has a lot of very uncomfortable material like. Uh, like uh, Zero Dark Thirty does. And it would be a movie that would be very polarizing, didn't really win over a lot of audiences. I actually saw that film. Yeah, I did too in theaters. I didn't like it. 
I did like it, but it's not a pleasant sit, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that's probably what it was. I, I, I'm not one of these guys that goes looking for Oscar films to watch or anything like that. I just go for entertainment. It, I don't think I was the target audience particularly, and it was uncomfortable to watch. Some harsh truths there, um, which is kind of what cinema can do and should do. I just don't really feel like I was in the right frame of mind to watch mm-hmm. it. But I, uh, John Boyega in that one? Yep. that He had a good performance in that. Yeah, and Will Poulter was very good as a deeply, deeply horrible person. Well, that's what I hear about him anyway, so that's fine. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, watch Midsummer. That's also the case there. Mm. <laughs> and just a final note. This is kind of a weird one. After this movie was released, the CIA had to do two internal investigations about the relationships the filmmakers had with the CIA. It seems there was a lot of gifts being passed around. There was some invites to secret events. And they completely overhauled their procedures for the um, CIA dealing with the entertainment industry in the wake of Zero Dark Thirty. Some uh, some really bad tradecraft right there. Right, that you could not have summed it up better. So that wraps me up on the behind the scenes. Well, that was the story of how Zero Dark Thirty came to be. But what I want to know is how do we feel about it almost ten years later? Now we all seem to. Have about enjoyed it when we watched it it wasn't like we were all blown away but i want to throw it to marianne you're our guest first now you've revisited it in 2021 fresh eyes what do you think yeah um i don't see the sort of the rah-rah pro-america stuff like i did back then Mm -hmm. uh the pro-torture stuff still is a worrisome aspect of the film but i do think that the i want to say the urgency of what America got itself into after 9-11 uh, is sort of depicted here, but it's kind of not urgent either because, as you said, it this takes place over more than 10 years. Um, I think it, it it it's a really tough film to look back on and remember what it felt like to be, and I was an, I'm a New Yorker, I was in New York on 9-11. And um, the, the the push to to punish people, to find the perpetrators, and make sure they paid for what they did was really strong among even the most pacifistic sort of people. And I think there's a the sort of like the slow burn in this film that kind of captures that. Um, I think looking back on this film now, the, the the thing that might end up being most valuable about it, you know, in the decades to come might be the sense of capturing that that feeling in America at that time. So in in one way maybe it's it was good that someone made this film soon after the events that were depicted just just as like this time capsule of emotion, you know, what however you want to judge it from now and I I think seeing what's happened in the Middle East and especially in Afghanistan in the wake of all of this, you know, we probably could have done a lot better. <laughs> um but that judgment is, you know, for for the future to make on on us. Um, I don't. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a it's a hard film to have a purely enthusiastic uh, response to. Uh, it's obviously really well made, craft wise, incredible performances, incredible cast, really well written as a as a thriller. But it's all tied up in you know the complicated reality that's depicting and. It's still, it's really hard for me to unpick that still. I think it's a, it's a very valid point. And, and you were in New York when September yeah. 11th happened. That, 
that means this whole thing has this very personal meaning to you and to the world by extension, but especially to you, you were there. Yeah. Um, and, and I always think about United 93. That's made five years later. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty raw. That's pretty close to everything. That is extremely raw. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw that at a press screening when the film was new and I, I, it was really difficult to watch. Um, I haven't seen it again. I, I'm not sure that I would want to because <laughs> it was really tough. Yeah, that's one of those like masterpieces that you're like, that's a one and done for me. I can never do it again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I don't know. I mean, this is uh, about United 93. I don't know if this is worth mentioning mm. and feel free to cut this if it doesn't work. But um, there's a one of the things that was um, interesting about United 93 is that they had like a lot of air traffic controllers playing air traffic controllers in the film. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, but there was one guy, one of the air traffic controllers in the film is a real air traffic controller who lives next door to my parents and I babysat mm. his kids. So I know him. And I don't think I knew that he was in the film. Um, and it was real, you know, you talk about like a film hitting home, but like it literally did for me. I don't think he wasn't on duty on 9-11, but the fact that somebody that I knew was basically replicating his work on screen was really, really weird feeling. Yeah, I, would, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, there was. I remember there was a film, and I've not seen it, Cam, but you were telling me about it a while ago when we discussed something similar to this, but there was like three soldiers on a train. Oh, yeah. Was, oh. And they were playing themselves. 1517 to Paris, yeah. Oh, that's a terrible, terrible film. That was my pick as the it, worst movie of that year that it came out. I oh. could not stand that movie. I mean, those guys did a, did a good, important thing, but the film, they should not have been playing themselves for one thing. Um, yeah, that was no. <laughs> how how close to that was that to the event? Uh, a pretty. I mean, I think, just a couple of years, probably. Yeah, it was maybe even less than that. It was very close. It was a little bit of that zero dark thirty of following very closely after the event. Yeah, but without any sort of distance or, you know, some of the um, criticism, positive and negative, of zero dark thirty was that it was journalistic. Yeah, in the sense that it was, you know trying to sort of follow the events uh but it, it doesn't have a lot of balance as journalism but there was no you can argue about how journalistic zero dark 30 is there is no aspect of journalism in that fifteen seventeen to paris film none it's pure hagiography hey, of these guys yeah and about an hour of uh travelogue yeah and there's not they're just not that interesting as movie characters no. you know they, like i said they did a good thing good for them they deserve to be praised for that but that doesn't automatically make for a great story. No, no. Well, I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll chime in with my thoughts about it now. It, it, you know, it's hard to, to follow you up, Marianne, because you hit a lot of the points I, I thought about it as well. I just think it, it's a solid film. Overall, it works. It's one of those films I feel like you have to pay attention to, and it keeps your attention. It's something we've struggled with in the past on this show, some of these spy films that need you to pay attention but don't hold your attention mm. so you wander off whereas this one is pretty gripping it's there's tension from scene one to the end yeah, and, and it's, I, I, it, it's two hours and 40 minutes long almost and it doesn't feel like it it never drags it keeps you engaged the whole way absolutely and i think that yeah, you know, a testament to the director and to the performances as well but i i think i i was worried about going back into this just for sort of the the jingoism of it all, like this uber patriotic side of things. And it, it really wasn't there. I seem to have it in my memory that it was. Yeah. But when I watched it again, I didn't feel that. Exactly the same for me. Maybe the, you know, the emotions were just a lot more raw at the time. Mm. And so now we've got a bit more distance. 
It, it, yeah. I think again, it, it's it's quite remarkable that they didn't lean into that as much because they could have easily done it. Yeah. Oh, like yeah, you imagine the Michael Bay version of this or something. Like it would have been a nightmare. Well, it's that's what was it? Thirteen soldiers. Uh, thirteen hours yeah. was it? Thir- uh, it was like the one about the Benghazi. Yeah, the, uh, the the Benghazi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I just I I think I wrote down. Um, it's hard to watch, but hard to look away. Mm. And, yeah. and and you mentioned the torture stuff. Some of the things they did in reality that this film is trying to portray, and it doesn't even particularly portray it to its full extent. Some of the acts that were done in places like Guantanamo Bay, but um, and, and you know, it asks the question a little bit: Does the ends justify the means? But I don't feel like it really dives into that for me. There's that side of it that I think is a little bit short. Um, so I didn't really like that. There's a, and, and I've got some gripes, but I think overall it works as a spy film. It's, it's enjoyable, and it's one of those things that keeps your interest. It's what I look for. Um, but what do you think, Cam? Yeah, it was one that I actually had some hesitation almost about revisiting because while I liked it the first time around, it was something that it has a little bit of that United 93. Do I want to go back and watch this story again, especially when it still feels relatively fresh in my mind i found myself much more sucked into just the storytelling this time around i mean catherine bigelow fantastic filmmaker i love the hurt locker and so much of the intensity of the hurt locker is just filtered in through all the procedural elements of this movie where a different filmmaker this could have been a chore to sit and watch them hop through year after year of paperwork and false leads. Like we've all seen that movie that's trying to string together events like this and it's just falling flat. Scott, think of the house on 92nd street. (laughs) I knew you were going to mention that bloody film. I do not recommend you watch that. that I don't think, I don't think I've seen that one. Okay. I'll avoid it. (laughs) To me, it really does work as sort of, as you know, Marianne said, a portrait of that time, that very particular time. It's a movie that's come under fire over the years for its accuracy. I, Mark Bull has kind of skirted around a little bit of like, well, you know, it is a movie. It's not necessarily fact, but it's also making a lot of statements about things that just weren't particularly accurate. But there's a number of entertainments that were produced around this time commenting on the feelings surrounding 9-11 that... I think we look at now and say like, oh, that's kind of messy, but there's like an immediacy to it that's very true to how we felt. You know, Scott, we're both Star Trek fans. Season three of Enterprise is you too. Oh, Marianne, perfect. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah. Season three of Enterprise is all of this response to 9-11. And it's something that now they look at and go, well, boy, we're a little uncomfortable with some of what we did. But I look at it and go, it's very important for how people were feeling at this moment. And yeah, I, I mean... I'll be curious how future generations look at the events of the killing of bin Laden. At the time, like, there was a real sense of almost just, like, relief of, like, okay, it's over. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) You know, (laughs) look where we are now. But there was a sense of, like, okay, something's been done about this situation. And to revisit the movie now was just, like, we talked about um, The Day of the Jackal right? Which has a real immediacy. And it's another procedural that really worked for me. And this one just has, Mm -hmm. for me, more of an emotional connection than the potential assassination of Charles de Gaulle. So I think it holds up really, really strongly as a film. And we're just going to have to debate years going forward, how we feel about it as a historical document. Mm. Well, I I was going to bring this up later, maybe in my sort of dislike slash quibbles section, but I think it's quite prescient to talk about it now. 
I, I think our experiences of this film are different, and, and it will be based on country, uh, you know, affiliation. Now, when Osama bin Laden was killed, I didn't feel a sense of catharsis. I didn't. People weren't punching the air in the UK, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. But I know that was happening in the States. It, it was. And it, I didn't feel a sense of catharsis either. And I was actually pretty repulsed seeing the way some people were reacting, like mm-hmm. we'd won the Super Bowl or something. I mean, that was really um, uncomfortable and unpleasant. And yeah, I mean, one of, one of my gripes with the film is that, and I still have it on second viewing, is that, you know, we're supposed to be the good guys. We're supposed to be the ones who, you know, we don't execute somebody without a trial, even the worst, the worst of monsters. You know, that's what the, all that the Nuremberg trials were about, mm-hmm. prosecuting people who did that and, and treating even the worst of criminals with due process and in a civilized way. And we didn't do that with bin Laden. It would have been, I mean, I understand there were all these arguments about, and at the time about, how that you couldn't have a fair trial, or what do you do with this guy? And I I get that, but I'm not sure that the way that we dealt with it was particularly helpful either. It didn't it didn't hold America up in a great light. Mm-hmm. I I I wouldn't. I'm not sure I would throw any blame around uh, uh, people's reactions. I think a lot of people's uh, t- connections to this is very personal. And some people would, it affects them in that level. I suppose my question I was getting to yeah, was, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. This, this is, this is good. But my question is, do you think it changes per country? Because I don't, I feel that there's a sense of connection that I don't have to this film and I won't ever have to this film just because I'm British. And I, I was wondering from both of you, both North Americans, mm. did you feel that there was that there for you or do you feel that doesn't exist at all? I don't know. I mean, I was already living in London when I saw the film. Um, which obviously is a couple of years after the events it's depicting, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. And I, it's not something that I've thought about before. Um, what you're saying makes perfect sense. Um, that's probably inevitable, actually, that different reactions are going to come from different perspectives. I mean, yeah. you can talk about, you know, spy kids. I don't think people's uh, you know reactions to that are going to be right. any different because it's just a it's a kids film it's just pure fantasy and that's it. yeah but yeah exactly yeah. but this is this is a reality based story and it's a very recent one and it has and an, it's it's a shared trauma that we have all survived in one way or another yeah. I mean as I say seven seven is an important thing to me and that gets a a good thirty seconds in the mm-hmm. film yeah um lip service basically but it, I, and that that's fine but maybe cam is there any connection on your side of things do you feel that extra connection because you're from north america i think just our proximity and closeness to the u.s we read a lot of u.s news we're pretty up to date on what's going on in the u.s and um you know obviously canada relies on the u.s for a lot as well and so like when all the 9-11 stuff was going on like we were just glued to the tvs and there was I tend to find Canada will often, when there's, um, you know, threats towards the U.S., Canada takes it extremely seriously because it could impact us as well. So there was a fear really coming out of 9-11 that things could happen in Canada. And there was an attack in, you know, Toronto. There have been incidents in Canada. Um, And so I do recall at the time, like, that real sense of, like, like we were with the US on what they wanted to do. And it didn't mean we weren't critical of things along the way, but there was a support for what the US was going through very strongly coming from Canada. Well, I mean, arguably you could say that about the UK as well. We were, I mean, if you go back to like, Blair 
Um, yeah. He was complicit with Bush in what happened as an initial knee-jerk reaction to exactly, yeah, to nine eleven, and that the polit the politics of that is is quite bad to look back on. And I'm a far left guy myself in that sense. You know, Blair is a Labour, like it, there's all that sort of thing connected to it. But I suppose I just didn't feel that sort of personal connection to this story, and I just wondered if you guys felt that. It seems like maybe there is something, but not too deep. Yeah, I would say that's a good way to characterize it. Yeah, definitely a personal connection to the the feeling that the film is sort of trying to capture in in a sort of a subtextual sense but not 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 so deep that um i don't feel i can be a slightly you know take a step back and, and take a look at the, at the whole the bigger picture you don't lose your objectivity yeah. i don't think well i was going to say that but i've often made a point of saying that there's no such thing as being objective about any kind of work of art so but yeah, not not so subjective that I can't, you know, d- just detach myself from the emotion of what it makes me feel to look at the the rest of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a naughty, complicated thing. It is, it is, and uh, these these real events are, especially the recent things, and and yeah, it's a shared trauma, as I said. It, um, it is interesting when you invited me to come and talk about this movie in particular. My first response was, and my emotional response was, wait, is this a spy film? Because in my head, I tend to think of spy films as um, being sort of fantastical and escapist, you know, mm. like the Bond movies, even when they sort of touch on, you know, real geopolitical stuff, or can at least in the subtext be seen as applicable to something that's really happening. That I tend not to think of spy films as something like this, but it absolutely is a spy film. I'm not, I mean, I can't deny that, but that was my first reaction was, wait, is this a spy film? Okay. Yeah, I guess it is. I think we, I think we often maybe look to movies, especially like the Bond films and and the, the, certainly the comedy spy stuff that I like as escapist. And there's nothing escapist about this movie. No, no, not at all. Like <laughs> nothing. <laughs> even even um, you know, the Day of the Jackal, which I cited earlier, is like this sort of harsh docudrama chronicling an assassination there in, in that film. Um, that has more relief than this movie. <laughs> yeah. Or even like um another one I know you guys know I like this one because you reference it in one of your other episodes, uh Bridge of Spies. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful film. It feels escapist in some to certain degree to me but maybe that's because everything that it depicts happened before i was even born so there's that there's extra distance to that yeah and that's so, yeah one thing about the movie though i'll say is like bigelow and you know the script is by mark bull um it doesn't feel like it's getting swept up in an emotional story as much like it feels like they're actually trying to do it from a distance approach which i really appreciated because you get the passion of the character, the lead character played by Jessica Chastain, Maya. Um, they let the movie filter through her intensity towards achieving this goal, but it doesn't feel like the filmmakers are, you know, bringing in the John Williams score or trying to kind of make it feel like an easy entertainment that you can just kind of bask in the way you can a Bridge of Spies, a movie I really, really enjoyed. It feels like they're yeah. like, what for better or worse, we are going to give a chronicle of this time period and let it stand as it stands, whether you enjoy it or not. And that's something I really noticed. You look on, say, like a Metacritic. Critics love this movie. Like This was like, I think, a 95 out of 100 or something like that. Whereas like audiences were much more subdued. You know, your average moviegoer, you know, ranking this movie online, much lower, much lower. Mm. Maybe that's just the escapist element people look for, that Mary was, Marianne was saying about. It's, it's, they, we crave that two and a half hours in the cinema where we don't get to live our lives. And this actually just reminds us of how bad it can be out here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. 
Um, well, let's let's maybe talk about some maybe not the lighter side of this film. There isn't much in terms of a lighter side, but like the things that we liked, the stuff we enjoyed, and we've we've spoken about the direction. We we've enjoyed that. I want to just say, Jessica Chastain is fantastic in this film. Uh, she's probably the strongest performance in this film by a country mile. Um, and I I could list a bunch of nice words about her, but I'll just leave it at that. She's fantastic. Well, she is the strongest performance in the film, but she's also the central character by far. I mean, there's hardly a scene that she's not in. Um, and the movie, um, as you were saying, totally is carried on the intensity of her character and her unrelenting dedication to this one chore of finding Bin Laden, which she does for more than a decade. It's And she this character is based on a real person. Um so it's not like she's a composite character, but she's not that far apparently from the reality of of this real person. Yeah, the original person I believe was named Jen. Like that was the CIA name was Jen. Um, and it's yeah, as you said, com- um, composite character in that it's she definitely covers more ground than Jen would have. But in terms of just the, I think the personality and the intensity and just the drive to achieve this goal, very much is yeah. drawn from that character. Yeah. And I think the film is is very clever in in how it uses Jessica Chastain's character because it shows you the nitty gritty that she has to go through to get there, and it makes it believable, and it it leads it more towards that docudrama angle that it's going for. But I did have a quibble with how she's introduced because, especially in that interrogation scene, you can see that she's uncomfortable. There's like little quick shots of her face looking like she's not enjoying herself. I mean, who would be? But you know, they're playing her as this timid person but really she is a i think they use some sort of animal analogy for her tiger or something like that um but she's she's holding it back and i thought that was a weird choice to start off with Hmm. see interesting i didn't see her as timid um in that first scene what i did see was uh, maybe she wasn't quite prepared for the the horror of the the interrogation and the torture that she was going to see and that doesn't sit well with her um and as the film goes on, well, er, only early on are there the torture scenes, but she, um, we see her control that sort of horror at what she's seeing a little better, but it still affects her. There's one scene later in the film where she's in an interrogation and she's being very, she's not physically interacting with the prisoner, but there's one bit where she like taps a soldier next to her and he attacks the guy uh, that they're interrogating. And she's very, in, in the interrogation, she's very, like, stolid and hard. But the instant she walks out, she sort of, she sort of doesn't quite collapse, but she just, you, you see that it's affecting her. So mm. I, to me, I just saw it more as a matter of how she was controlling her emotions rather than not feeling them or just, just sort of keeping them inside until she could let them out. And you have the scene, too, where the guy is left alone with her and tries to appeal to her and probably thinking, well, she'll be softer. And she really isn't. Like, you get the and hardness of that not. character where I, I do imagine this is a character who's obviously very hard-edged. Probably the reality of seeing that situation, you see her kind of reacting to, like, the smell in the room, for example. Um, I'm sure the horror of that moment is hitting her, but I get the sense she's someone who'd be willing to, you know, pull the trigger on people, no problem. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, maybe it's more it's more like a it's like a visceral reaction that she has like you say to like the smell and um 
not so, I mean, the fact that she's there in the first place at all suggests that she's not averse to the idea of what's happening. It's just the, the, the sort of in-your-face reality of it she has to get a bit adjusted to. I do, I do like that this film does not ever show anyone enjoying the torture. It doesn't linger on what they're doing to their prisoners. I mean, it could have, the film could have been a lot more exploited. It, it could have been exploitive, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sort of is depicting the reality of what was going on without reveling in it or, um, yeah. So it's pro-torture to a degree, but not to the, to the point where it says that anyone's actually enjoying this, which, thank God. <laughs> Yeah, it's depiction, not, I think, cheering it on as this is really a great thing we were doing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll throw it out. We've had Jessica Chastain, but uh, Marianne, what's something else you enjoyed about the film? Um, well, the, oh, the supporting cast is like two or one cool. amazing. And uh, certainly in retrospect, when you go back, to, you know, 10 or more years later and look at it, you're like, oh, my God, that's Chris Pratt is in there. Um, Jeremy Strong shows up. Uh, Mark Strong. Uh, all these people, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot they were in here. Uh, Joel Edgerton. Uh, John Barrowman. Jo- uh, James Gandolfini. Amazing. I totally forgot he was in this. Frank Grillo. So people keep... I was shocked when Frank yes. Grillo popped up for like one brief moment. And I actually yeah, paused like it one, to look one up. Bit. Yeah. Yeah, so the supporting cast is incredible. Really, Jason Clark. I mean, he's really, um, really amazing actor. Really like him. Um, Jennifer Ely. Yeah. Yeah, good. I like that they weren't that Jessica Chastain was not the only woman in the film because that is a bugbear of mine. Where this like, you know, one girl and the whole guy gang. So that was good. Um, yeah, I mean, and everybody just is so there in the moment whether they're like you know the guy behind the desk or that there's that one street scene i think it's the first appearance by mark strong where he comes in to berate the team in in pakistan and it's just he's just screaming at them and it's great it's such an amazing performance i I will just ask about mark strong because i was very curious um do you think i could get away with his wig could i pull that (laughs) off i think you probably could yeah (laughs) go for it (laughs) as as you know, listeners, I am follically challenged, and uh, Mark Strong turns up in a very convincing wig. So I, I need to contact his. Uh, is it croupier? No, that's for horses. Uh, contact croupier. I don't know. Yeah, I probably need some horse hair yeah. up on here, so that's there fine. You go. I think I think you should try it. No, that Mark Strong scene really jumped out to me. It's almost like the um, Alec Baldwin, Glengarry Glenn Ross moment, where like this character mm. just comes in, steals the scene. And just, you're like, wow, like, who was that guy? And yeah, like, that supporting cast just through and through. I thought Jason Clark was phenomenal. I can't say that yeah. when I saw it the first time around, he leaped off the screen to me. And then, of course, you know, years after this, we would get several Jason Clark starring vehicles. Hollywood would really run with him for a while there. Mm-hmm. And um, this character I just found so interesting because you see the horrors he's doing. You completely buy into, or not buy into, but like, understand the process of how this is happening through him and like the psychology that he's using you're understanding through his character just really scary terrifying stuff and the way he just kind of walks out and is very nondescript and you see him later in the movie working in you know offices in washington it's just like how does this man disconnect from this like i would watch Mm. it and they always say one of the compliments to like a supporting character is i would watch an entire movie about that character's life i would love to know what's going on with jason clark because um, it's a movie I've cited a lot on the podcast. I don't 
just coincidence, I guess, but it like it just reminded me of Oscar Isaac in the card counter. I'm like, I want to know what this guy's up to when he's not, you know, part of these missions. I was going to bring up the card counter. I wondered if you guys had seen it because that without spoiling it too much for people who haven't seen it, which is probably most people at this point, it does have a sort of um, a sort of connection to this film in one way. Um, yeah. If you haven't seen the trailers for card counter, you wouldn't know that there's this connection, but uh, it, it's an interesting companion piece to zero dark 30. Mm-hmm. Cause I guess it's not too much of a spoiler to say that um, the Oscar Isaac character is, of a soldier who fought in the war on terror and has been haunted by what he's done during it. Cause yeah. So you can maybe see, maybe Jason Clark will um, meet up with Oscar Isaac and play cards. I would watch that movie. I'm sure their conversations <laughs> yeah. would be fascinating. Yeah. It's so funny. There was one, there was a bit in the film in zero dark 30 where um, Jessica Chastain is approaching. She's back in Washington. She's approaching the office of her superior, or maybe it's still in Pakistan. But anyway, they're in an office setting, and the guy's on the phone and just hears a voice at first. And I went, "Oh my God, that's Oscar Isaac!" And it turns out it wasn't when we see him. But I thought, "Wow, if he showed up in here, because he's done a couple things with Jessica Chastain now." Um, so I, I, I was sorry that I was wrong about that, but that would have been fun. <laughs> Well, I mean, just speaking of the supporting cast, I think one of the film's strengths is that it knows when to drop people. Yeah. Like, you've got people like Mark Strong and James Gandolfini, but they're only in it for a few scenes, and it doesn't need any more because it knows who its central character is. And it's not it's not spending, not wasting minutes on other people's stories when really you know what you're here to see and you know who your lead character is that's taking you to that end goal. Mm-hmm. So why would I want to spend another half an hour with Jason Clark? But it leaves you wanting more, and that's exactly. the key. Yeah, uh, Edgar Ramirez, another one. He's uh, one of the soldiers who helps them pinpoint. He's terrific. Um, yeah, I would love to know more about him. <laughs> yeah, like Scott, we talked about Operation Crossbow, which featured many a scenes of character actors in rooms talking dragging down the entire movie around them and you know a classic trope of old hollywood styles of docudramas um and this is a movie that as you said knows when to get rid of them and let's not drag them out throughout the course of the movie like if they're important give them the you know fireworks scene like a mark strong you know in that boardroom moment or james gandolfini um you know basically deciding whether this mission should be going ahead Stuff like that is great, and these character actors really bring it to life. They're employing them for what they do best, which is just come in, hit a home run, and walk out without, in this case, really standing outside the vibe of the tone that Catherine Bigelow is going for. Like they all work really well within, and it's a cast that I'm sure probably this was the perfect moment for them all to be assembled coming off of the Hurt Locker. Every actor wants to be part of something like that in the wake of that, and boy like what a cast and obviously a number of all-stars going forward you know chris pratt would become a movie star a couple years later in Mm -hmm. guardians um yeah really crazy edgerton as well yeah well um what about you cam and if your answer is this is the film that led to chris pratt having the abs in guardians of the galaxy (laughs) that that answer is completely fine because i've watched that film a lot (laughs) uh well i mean catherine bigelow's filmmaking just cannot be uh underrated you look at the entire siege at the end of this film, unbelievable filmmaking. I remember in the theater, just edge of your seat. You know the outcome. And it's one of those filmmaking achievements. You know, you look at Titanic. Everyone knows how Titanic's going to end. 
but you just sit there gripped because of James Cameron's filmmaking through that entire end section. And here it's the same thing. That siege on the compound, um, unbelievable filmmaking. And just, I know that some of the SEAL team members have said, well, the tactics weren't accurate, but as portrayed on screen, like you are just absorbed and just her ability to capture the tension. And there's moments of tension throughout the movie. You know, you can look as well at the, um, the meetup that the Jennifer L character sets up that goes wrong. Like there's so much tension in that sequence, but like this last 20 minutes is almost exhausting because you're just so gripped, even though we all know the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's a situation where it's dark, uh, it's chaotic. Um, and yet we never lose track of what's happening, where people are. Like there's a real sense of space to that. And I mean, that is masterful filmmaking. It really is. Because that could just be confusing and dull because you don't know what's going on. You don't know what the stakes are. Here, even just the littlest thing of, you know, a child who's crying or become all these little pieces add up into this like tapestry of tension. It's really astonishing. And even the execution of Bin Laden is done so quickly. Like, it doesn't glorify the moment. It doesn't do the action hero kind of takedown. It's so quick. Yep. And it, I think, kind of touches on that there is no great satisfaction over his death because it's so quick. It's like they say to the soldier who did it, like, do you realize what you just did? And he's like, he kind of has that moment of like, no, I didn't really think about it. Mm. And you have Maya at the end of the film sitting with, you know, the body. And it's like, what now? Like, that's been my entire life. Yeah. And it's over. And I have no idea where I'm going now. Yeah. That, that's one of the more powerful things that the film says is that the very last shot on her is that she's just completely numb. She's, yeah, like you said, she's dedicated her whole life to this and now it's done. And now what? And obviously, there, you know, there's no bit in the film where people are cheering or there's none of that. There's almost, it's almost anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Which was my fear going into it was that sort of the, the jingoism, as I said before, yeah. and it, it really isn't there, which no. I, I don't know why I seem to recall there was, but I think that was maybe just the, the closeness to the time it actually happened. And, and on that last scene cam, I completely agree. It's great. I, I wrote down it has like horror film vibes to it, just the way it's shot mm. and you get like little bits of people running in the background and you, you're, you're hoping your soldiers will make it out alive, even though you know exactly what happens to everyone involved in that operation. And, but it still manages to create that tension and that fear. And I think that's a very, very successful sequence. Yeah, it's really just top tier filmmaking across the board and it, mm. just unbelievable to watch. And it was something that when I was revisiting it, you worry like the immediacy of seeing it the first time was pretty incredible. But, um, you know, 10 years plus removed, it was very interesting. I guess just under 10 years. It was very interesting just to see how incredibly effective it still is even after we have a better understanding of the real world events at the time, this was like, it felt in 2012 slash 13, when I saw it more of a window into things, you didn't quite know what had happened. Mm. Well, I, I suppose I'll pivot us over into if there's any quibbles or things to nitpick with the film, any dislikes. Um, the main one I'm going to talk about, and it, it's kind of personal is that, uh, that I've had some important things happening today in my life. And during watching this film, I had to be on hold to the bank. <laughs> so for a good 25 minutes during the middle section of this film, I had to listen to a robot voice saying, your custom is very important to us. Please, please stay on the line. And then listening to Toto's hold the line oh. on repeat. It was on low volume, but like, 
it did take me out of a couple of scenes. So I, I think Hold the Line by Toto has now been ruined for me because I will forever associate it with the killing of Osama bin Laden. <laughs> That's dark, Scott. That's real dark. <laughs> That's a zero dark. Yeah. <laughs> Times 30. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I'll throw it out. Like We've said this film is, is quite the triumph, but I'm sure we'll all have a couple of things to nitpick about the film. Marianne, have you got something that springs to mind? Um, well, I think probably the one is was what I've already mentioned, which is the the sort of the pro torture aspect of it mm-hmm. really really bothers me um there's all sorts of debates to be had about how accurate a movie has to be when it's based on something that's actually happened when it's based on real people and I go back and forth on that because yes, movies have to tell a good story a narrative film has to tell a good story sometimes you have to change the facts or carry composite characters and things you know to do that um no one should look at a film, even one that's based on real real facts, and take that as their only knowledge about whatever the movie's about. Uh, but, but the reality is that people do do that, and these movies are really influential. Um, so maybe the fact that audiences are not that into this film is a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe the idea that, you know, torture works um, wasn't bolstered by this movie. But yeah, that, this, that is the, the one sour note for me in this but beyond that i you know just the the larger because this is through the eyes of just the one character maya the jessica chastain character um we don't have like larger geopolitical context for this for much of what we see and um again like one movie can't do everything um so that doesn't bother me quite so much as uh how myopic it is about the the torture stuff it is a conversation that we've had uh, as well on the podcast, and one I think a lot of people just have in the world if you follow films and are really into films, is that how accurate does a biopic have to be? Especially, like, I think we've run into issues over the years and much more debates about movies like this that land very close to the events. Because Zero Dark Thirty, like, a lot of holes have been poked in terms of what's portraying on screen. You know, obviously the effectiveness of the torture in the movie um the shifting of presidents uh in the movie is portrayed in a way that people have said actually this wouldn't have gotten done if obama hadn't been president and the movie doesn't really give you that indication as much so like i don't know like marianne how accurate do you feel like these movies should be when they come out in the moment like is it impossible to do because it's so messy and fresh even at the time Mm. i think it's probably more impossible to do it the closer it is to the events depicted certainly something like this where the events depicted are were top secret for the longest time and i'm sure we still don't know the whole story um so yeah it's uh it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing and i i still it's kind of one of those things where it's like you know when you see it you know that this is this is getting it right and and this one's getting it wrong and um i i feel like apart from the, the the effectiveness of torture aspect of this movie i think it even if all the details aren't exactly right, even if the tactics that the SEAL team used to get into the, the compound weren't exactly accurate, I think it's prob- that's probably okay um, because it is giving you a general sense of what it took to, to do this job. Um, maybe at some point we'll get a rebuttal film that will they'll give us the, the true story of Zero Dark Thirty and how they really got that, that intelligence that wasn't gotten through torture. Um, I mean, these kinds of movies can be conversations with each other. Um, we just need to keep that in mind when we watch movies like this, that, you know, don't take this as gospel. This is 
maybe one part of the puzzle could be an important part of the puzzle, but it's not going to be the whole story, even if it pretends to be. I think for me with the the torture stuff, what I was surprised about on my revisit was that it didn't shine a light on how useless that information usually is from torture and and was proven to be from these interrogations. Because it... it, Okay, the the film doesn't really apologise. It really has that sort of ends justify the means spirit inside this film. And Mm. maybe it would have bogged the film down if it spent another 10 minutes giving us a scene from some intel that proved to be wrong because it was just under duress. Um, And maybe that's why we never saw that. But I just feel like if you're going to tell this sort of story, you need to point out that, okay, this stuff happened. That's fine. It's fact. But it doesn't mean anything because it's useless information that shouldn't be done. I don't think this film went far enough to explain why it's bad and useless. I mean, there could have been one character in one scene objecting, you know, saying, look, we know we're not going to get anything useful from this guy. So why are we doing this? I mean, there could have been just that, just even if it just had that little bit. I mean, we can't deny that the torture did happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know that people were taken to black sites. I'm sure we don't even know all the horrible things that they did to them. Um, So that happened and there's no point in denying that. But surely there must have been somebody at the the time who said, really, this is what we're going to do. Like, not only is it, inhumane it's also just not going to work it's bad police work Uh, and even if there wasn't someone at the time you know because we're allowed to have a little bit of artistic license or journalistic license with these things you could still have some character there saying hmm and it doesn't need to be you know someone in every scene just just one once one person saying really this is probably not going to work well there's lots of scenes around tables where characters are talking about you know process of going through what they need to do you could easily have a character being like we can't trust this sort of information like exactly. it's not achieved through a means that's effective you could yeah. easily just have that tossed off line where at least the audience can go oh someone acknowledged that you know they're thinking what i might be thinking exactly and you know there is the, there's one scene in the film where uh jessica chastain is talking to jennifer ely and they're talking about their tactics and what they're going to be doing and there's a tv on in the background and there's an interview with barack obama and he's talking about how america does not torture blah, the, all this stuff and they they pause just for a second to listen to that and then they go right back to talking about torturing basically and i remember thinking at the time um back when the film was new that i was like oh so that's the little bone they're going to throw to you know the america doesn't torture thing um and i saw it a little bit in a little slightly more nuanced way this time where i thought okay the, this is the film acknowledging the hypocrisy of it i just if only there'd been just a, maybe a little bit more of that so that it's not just that one sort of almost throwaway scene a little bit more of an undercurrent of i don't know you don't, you don't want movies like this to go overboard either. You know, it doesn't need to hit us over the head with, you know, the fact that what these people are doing is not so great. But yeah, just maybe just a little more tip in the other direction would have been welcome. Um, This movie, like, has so much to offer in terms of process, in terms of just being a procedural. And yet so much of the conversation, as I think we're finding today, falls back on these torture scenes, right? Which, as depicted, are incredibly visceral because of Catherine Bigelow's mastery of filmmaking. Is this sort of the the kind of the blanket that hangs over this movie, even going forward this many years, that people still just kind of, I appreciate what this movie's doing, um, but these torture scenes really do kind of hang over and maybe even dampen my enthusiasm of the movie? Because it's a movie I feel like a lot of people appreciate more than they really love. Hmm. 
I don't even think it's the torture scenes per se, because you could cut those scenes out, but they're still acting on information that they supposedly have gathered from the torture. Mm -hmm. So that's the issue. It's it's not uh, the, the depiction of torture per se. It's the how torture is involved in the plot. Mm, yeah. So yeah, no, I think I think you're right that it is. It's this is um, this is something that's always going to dog this movie. It's also just not one of those films you'll stick on, really. No, like we said this earlier on. It's it's not. It's not. I it's mean, not a comfort film. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and, and even if you're in the mood for some prestige, yeah, I don't think this would be a film you would reach for either because it yeah. it makes you uncomfortable. And I don't. Yeah. And, and much as boundaries should be pushed, I think, especially in cinema, I just think that. It is a piece of its time, but I don't think it will... It might hold up, but I don't think people will be going back to it. Right. I think it does hold up, you know, a decade later. But you're right, there is a difference between movies that you appreciate and movies that you love and go back to again and again. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is this is not one that if I came across it flipping around on TV, I would go, oh, I gotta, I gotta watch the rest of this one now. <laughs> like you might do with some other films. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should talk just a little bit more about Jessica Chastain as the protagonist here, because I thought one thing that was really interesting about the movie on the revisit, I remember some of the criticisms around the movie, those that weren't necessarily as big of fans would mention that this character was not a lot of interpersonal life in the movie. But I think on the revisit, I was really honing in on that um, and that that is the entire point of the character which is we see several times like when she goes out to like dinner with Jennifer L Jennifer L's like oh you know have you met anyone have you hooked up with anyone do you have any sort of anything going on and the whole focus of this character i think is what is really interesting is the fact that she has no life this is her sole focus this is all she has and i think is representative yeah. of if not necessarily the person that they loosely based it on the attitudes of so many of these CIA agents and military going through this experience of tracking down Bin Laden. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we certainly see lots of male characters across genres that are like this. They're totally dedicated to the work. Yeah, that doesn't bother me at all. That makes perfect sense. I really, And in fact, I loved that one, of the, and I mentioned this in my original review, I love that there isn't a scene where there's some boyfriend or husband who's like, you're more interested in getting Bin Laden than you are in me. That's, it's so, the movie did not need that at all. And it doesn't matter. Who who cares what her personal life is like? <laughs> I also think matter. that um, you can look at this movie, too, where they reference, you know, she was recruited out of high school. Clearly, this is someone that the CIA would recognize is the perfect asset who would you would plug into, you know, cases like this because they are going to have that single minded focus. Yeah, you want someone who's going to be this obsessive. They're going to get the job done. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think she also works as just kind of an amalgam for the US and their quest to take down Osama bin Laden. It, I mean, I know she is a, a audience surrogate and she's a amalgamation of different people that helped work on this case, but I think she's also just that. She is the US's dog-eared must-get Osama bin Laden and, and that was their attention for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. I also love, I mean, if we had a male director, if this was Michael Bay, <laughs> we there would have been so much like sexualizing of her image on screen you know and there's none of that in fact there's only there's the one tiny bit and it's not it's not Bigelow's perspective it's not the camera's perspective when she the first time she shows up at the embassy in um, Pakistan and Jason Clark and um, Kyle Chandler oh, I forgot to mention him Kyle Chandler he's amazing uh, there he's Ch Chandler's character is meeting her for the first time and 
she's on the other side of a glass wall, so she can't hear what Clark is about to say to Kyle, which is, was I wrong? And it's it, what, what we are meant to infer is that he told Chandler, this woman is absolutely stunning looking. And because they're both, you know, he's seeing her for the first time. And I mean, that's it. That's the only comment. And it's perfectly plausible, you know, that, but she's never treated by the characters on screen or by the camera in any sexualized way at all, which is like so refreshing. Mm-hmm. It, it's very nice to see. I, I was disappointed, as I said before, Chris Pratt didn't take his show. <laughs> That's just me. If he'd been I'm in sorry. the film a few minutes longer, perhaps he would have. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And Jessica Chastain is so good at playing people who have real authority over a situation. Mm-hmm. One of her real strengths. And she's one of those actors who I just, whenever she's on screen, it's almost impossible to hide how smart she is. Like, it just comes across in all of her really good performances. You know, I think of Molly's Game as well. Oh, I love Molly's Game. I was going to mention that, yeah. Like, she always can come across like the smartest person in the room, and no one will ever question it. Like, you buy it, mm-hmm. and you, you know, when you have scenes with, like, Joel Edgerton is just gesturing to her, like, I'm confident because she's confident. Like, clearly, yeah. she knows exactly what's going on. She has such such authority on screen mm-hmm. and it, it's rare that movies let women have that and to see her just using that again and again and again on screen it's so wonderful i think she's so great it's so funny she's one of those people somehow you, you get this image of of what people must be like in person um that you you don't get on the screen like she's very tiny like height wise she's really small and whenever i see her that shows the context of really how tiny she is i'm always stunned because in my mind she's like this towering figure yeah because of you know the power that she has on screen it's really astonishing she's terrific she's one of my favorites do you think there's a little bit of a surrogate situation going on here with Catherine bigelow and this character of maya could be so you look at Catherine bigelow you know coming up as starting out as like an action director in a very male driven genre and moving Mm -hmm. into films like this She's the, you know, the only, at the time, the only um, female director to win, you know, best director. So Mm -hmm. she really is kind of running these massive shows in terms of directing a movie like The Hurt Locker and this. And you get a little bit of the uh, comparison there with Maya. I I bet she has a real empathy with Maya, with what she's going through. You know, the way she has to push through in this male-dominated environment must be quite intimidating, at least when you get started. yeah, I'm sure that there's a, certainly an element of that mm-hmm. going on in this movie. It's it's interesting and somewhat uh, time appropriate that we're speaking about this film as well, because I recently had a, a discussion on Twitter with a few people about female representation in spy films. And, and I was calling out that we needed more female-led spy films, not just sub-characters, wives and girlfriends. I want lead actors as uh, played by women. And it's nice that we're covering this film because it's such a strong example that it can be done well. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing more of this. Yeah. Well, it's one of the reasons why I love the Melissa McCarthy movie, Spy, uh, because it uh, is not only a female-led spy film, but the comedy of it is about undercutting the sort of the male dominance of the genre. Um, and that's that's what makes it so enjoyable to me. I haven't actually seen that film yet. I'm I'm saving it for when we cover it, but I know Cam's a fan. Okay. Yeah. It it is not. I'm not the biggest Melissa McCarthy fan in the world, uh, or at least I haven't been. Um, and when I, the way this this movie was sold to us, I thought, oh God, I'm going to hate this. And it's completely not what you think it's going to be. Yeah. It's it's not Austin Powers. <laughs> 
Isn't Mark Strong also in that? Uh, he is. I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> My mind's fuzzy on that point, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Even without the wig, he's still sort of a fashion <laughs> fashion inspiration for me. Uh, just just with the just with the build, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I think we're sort of wrapping up towards our final thoughts here, but does anyone have any additional notes we haven't brought up, any points they want to talk about? I, I've actually done mine. Yeah, um, I'll talk about the script by Mark Bull. This is a movie laden with jargon, terms that may lose people. And Scott, you and I have watched Bond movies where we're like sitting forward going, like, what is the villain trying to do? Like, what is the plot at this point? And you look at how much they had to chronicle going, you know, time-wise from 2003 to 2011 in this film, that's a lot to deal with. A lot of jargon coming from CIA characters who are, they want to capture what these briefings could actually be like in a technical way. How do you communicate this to an audience? And the fact that you can sit and watch two hours and 40 minutes of this movie and never feel lost, that is a real testament to both the script and the filmmaking. Yeah, I'll second that too. Yeah, you're right. It's it's just absolutely crammed full of workplace conversations, basically, with people using you know, their workplace jargon, and yet we follow it, no problem. I think it's something that um, Argo does quite successfully as yes. well mm-hmm. um, with that sort of language. And it, it has also had that pressure of being set in the country where people are trying to kill you. And I, There was a moment where I did feel like I was watching Argo when she was attacked coming out of her house. Mm. Um, that, that felt like it was straight out of Argo, so that was interesting. Um, Ar- I love Argo too. Argo, Argo is one that manages to be about real events... Uh, re- relatively recently, I mean, I'm just about old enough to remember uh, the Iran hostage crisis um, in the in the the bigger sense of it being a big story on the news, um, and yet that's still completely escapist, and that's a that's a fun movie, even though it's about you know maybe it's because it didn't end terribly, you know, it had a you know it wasn't a disaster, and the whole sci-fi thing running underneath it, yeah, the sort of the yeah. wackiness of the Hollywood side of things, maybe true, good point, much more of a crowd pleaser. <laughs> It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what about you, Marianne? Any final notes? Um, what, uh, one thing I wanted to say was that the last bits, uh, we were talking about James Cameron before, uh, towards the end of the film where Chastain goes in and meets the SEAL team and they're talking about the helicopters and their stealth capabilities and the guys want to know what the what the mission is. And she goes in and she tells them. I was suddenly so reminded of the scene early in Aliens where Ripley is briefing the Marines about what they're going to encounter on the planet. And I was like, wow, that's that had not occurred to me the first time. So maybe with the distance of time and, and being slightly less emotional about all of it, I was able to see sort of the more sort of like pure movie movie stuff going on here. Also interesting because James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow were married. For a period of time. They were, and she was like kind of a protege of his. Like they worked together. So yeah, you definitely see his influence in her work. I didn't know that at all, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and he produced Strange Days, which is a really fantastic movie that she directed as well. Mm -hmm. So Hmm. there you go. Uh, Any final notes from folks? Um, Well, I just want to cite too the helicopter journey in, I thought was incredibly effective. Just like the tension, the mounting tension of that whole sequence. Unbelievable. Mm hmm. I, and I, I also would note the night vision view of that final assault. I, I've worn night vision goggles before, and that's I, she's nailed that. Mm. That looks terrific. Um, yeah, I, I, well, we've spoken about that final scene. We've all loved it. That's fine. Yeah. But I think it's time to skip on over to the knock list. And Cam, as we have a guest, do you want to just quickly explain what the knock list is? Yes, the knock list is the tortured acronym for need to see official classics. 
of the Spy Hearts <laughs> podcast, where every week after we've talked about a movie, we determine whether it belongs on the list of, I hesitate to say like the all-timers, but the great spy films that you could hand off to people and they would watch them and be like, these really are entertaining spy films or important spy films that I get a lot out of. So movies that have made the list, uh, Three Days of the Condor, Argo made the list, um, several of the Bonds did, like the early Sean Connery ones, uh, and Goldeneye as well, the Pierce Brosnan film. Um, Hannah, starring Saoirse Ronan, made it on the list. So it's somewhat eclectic, but it's movies we think people mm-hmm. need to see. Like, if you are into the spy genre, you should see these movies. Absolutely. So... As you're our guest, Marianne, the first vote goes to you. Yes or no? Is it making and why? Uh, I would say yes, because purely for uh, the count to counteract the fantasy aspect of the spy genre. This is what spycraft really is. It's hard slog work uh, over a long period of time. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy. Um, and also to show the real life impact of what spy work has on the real world. So yes, I would say it goes on the knock list. Okay. Uh, that's one yes. Cam, what have you got? I'm a yes as well. I think it's a messy movie emotionally for people to revisit now. And I think that's actually important because it will give you insight into how people people were feeling at the time. Like people were grappling with this situation. And I think it's one that really taps into that feeling. But just filmmaking wise, as a procedural, it's gripping. It's top level filmmaking. I don't really have any quibbles with it in terms of you know, a two-hour, 40-minute film experience other than, as we've talked about, some of the moral issues and, you know, the torture elements and, you know, whether the movie is truthful about how effective they were. But again, it's so much tied to a time and place. And I think you can look at a lot of older movies. Let's watch some of those old 1940s John Wayne World War II movies and compare those to, you know, the situation at the time. And they see, they seem like cartoons. This, to me, feels honest to how people were feeling at the time. So I think it's an important time and place movie, time capsule movie. And Jessica Chastain's performance alone is just towering. And as Marianne said, it's a spy movie that actually shows genuine spy craft at work. No glitz and glamour, just portrayed as it is. And, you know, obviously at a top level. So for me, it's a yes. Well, it's my favorite because when we have three votes and we have two yeses, I'm I'm basically defunct at this point. There's no there's no reason for me to speak, so I should probably just end the show anyway. But here we are. I'm going to vote no, and it's purely because of Mark Strong's hair. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> because I'm insanely jealous and I I want to know who his horse manicurist person is. You know, like I, I need to have that connection and, and I'll, I'll make the call, don't worry. No, I'm kidding. It's a, it's a, I'm not going to say masterpiece. I think few films make masterpiece level, but it's certainly a terrific film um, in terms of creating a film, in terms of the tradecraft of filmmaking. The film likes saying the word tradecraft. <laughs> um, you can't put it down. It it keeps your attention for two and a half hours, which is something that a lot of other films can't say, including No Time to Die. And as as Cam said, Jessica Chastain is fantastic. Yes, there are some problems with it. The, the, the torture stuff maybe doesn't really show you the reality of it all and really shine a light on the problems with that type of torture. But this works as an encapsulation of the vibe that was being felt by at least America during this time period. 
they didn't they the, they didn't need to justify the means. They wanted to just get that end goal of getting Osama bin Laden. And I think this film depicts that pretty well. And I think it would be missing from the knock list if it didn't make it on. So I will give it my stamp of approval. <laughs> okay. Um, and as such, that's three yeses and zero dark thirty is making the knock list. Marianne, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us this evening. Thank you again. It's been a real pleasure. Um, now, we'll have notes in the show notes below, but tell us a little bit about the website, where people can find it and people can find you. Well, the site is flickphilosopher.com, and that's philosopher with an F, but if you type in philosopher spelled the normal way, you will find the site, because uh, I registered all, all the alternate domains. Um, also, if you just uh, like Google like Marianne Film Critic, it'll pop up. I think I'm the only film critic called Marianne, Ooh. so that's easy enough to find. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, and that's not actually true, but there's there's very, very few of us. I think I can think of one other. <laughs> and Marianne, we'll have to get you back for a lighter spy film in the future, one that doesn't involve excessive scenes of torture. <laughs> that would be absolutely delightful. Perhaps Spy itself. Oh, okay. When you get oh, around to that yeah. one. <laughs> pitching, you're pitching yourself for a film. I'm I quite pitching like myself, it. Yes. I like it. But yes, and, and on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at MarianneJohansson.com. Um, and uh, yeah, but you'll find all those links are on Flick Philosopher. Cool. And uh, you know, you've got some really good articles on your website. I know you sent me one over about sort of representation in Hollywood and directors and things like that as well. So that's I d yeah, it's not I just reviews; whole, it's other things. It's it's all film related. Yeah, I did a whole year long project where I looked at the representation of women on screen. Um, you know how well they're you know are they the central characters in the stories? Are they just depicted as you know sexual objects? Uh, yeah, so check that out. Absolutely. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes below. But again, Marianne, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Cam, we've thoroughly decoded Zero Dark Thirty, but I'm curious, what are we doing next week? Well, we are not changing the pace at all, Scott. More of the same. You want Zero Dark Thirty, I think it makes a lot of sense for us to jump right into 2002's Spy Kids 2 Island of Lost Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shiitake mushrooms. It's back, baby. I can't wait. Is this the most whiplash transition from movie to movie we've ever had? I mean, wh what did we do before we did one of our dinosaurs is missing? I guess anything next to one of our dinosaurs was probably a bit of whiplash as well. Yeah. Um, that's This is what we do here. We, we change it around every week. It'd get boring if we just did bonds every week, I'm sure. So... I appreciate you all following along. And speaking of appreciate, we recently launched our Patreon. And part of that, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. We've got some great patrons on board already, and that number is growing. But can tell the listeners a little about what we've had already and what we've got coming up. Yes, so we've got our Agents in the Field series, and we've put out episodes on The Rock, The Sting, and Jaws the Revenge. And the focus of this series is to look at popular spy actors in some of their other famous films. And we've also put out some commentaries. We have Goldeneye is out for you to listen to and hear us journey along the adventures of James Bond in Pierce Brosnan's debut. And so that is really worth checking out. And we're going to have some commentaries coming up on some pretty cool movies. So check those out. Yeah, we've got some great tiers, different options for patrons as well, some affordable options and some higher tiers as well to access things like the commentary. So drop on over to patreon.com slash to find out more and there'll be links in the show notes below. But of course, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Spy Kids 2 and join us next week. We are, of course, proud members of Quite the Thing. 
and Podbreed Podcast Networks. You can find out more about those on their respective websites. Don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, we don't know what we don't know.